Just a quick heads up, there are more violent themes this week. Nothing gratuitous, but for those that like a warning, find out more details before you listen on mythsandlegends.com. This week on Myths and Legends, it's our third piece of the Robin Hood tales. And this time, we'll be reminded, yet again, that nothing spells rebranding strategy quite like staring death in the face. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's the Milchim from rabbinical folklore. As they say, an apple a day keeps the Milchim away. Except they're totally wrong, because the Milchim isn't going anywhere. You are. This is Myths and Legends, episode 141C, On Brand. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This is part three of our Robin Hood stories, so if you haven't listened to part one and two, you might want to go do that first. Previously on the podcast, Robin Hood mysteriously appeared in Sherwood Forest after ruining the archery contest the Sheriff of Nottingham had thrown for the king. For three years, he both joined and recruited other outlaws living in the woods until he had quite the formidable band. Finding himself humiliated one too many times, the sheriff hired an assassin, one Guy of Gisborne, to track down and kill Robin Hood once and for all. And so, Guy not only tracked down Robin Hood, but informed one of the sheriff's underlings about where the band lived in the forest. We left off last week with Guy marching toward the gates of Nottingham, with Robin's mutilated head on a pike, and 140 of the sheriff's men lying in wait in their camp in Sherwood Forest. It looks like Robin's reign of terror in the forest had finally come to an end. A few hours ago, Robin Hood found himself talking in the woods to Guy of Gisborne, the one sent to end him. Moments before it seemed like both men would part ways, the assassin revealed his skill, his cunning, and his knowledge. He knew exactly who Robin Hood really was. As the knife tore into his side, as the sadistic Guy of Gisborne looked down with a smile and twisted, Robin didn't curse. He didn't scream. He prayed. Robin prayed to the Virgin Mary for strength. Would she help him not only survive this moment, but save his band, the only family he had left from the ambush? If he survived, he would be different. Almost immediately, and miraculously, the pain dulled. It didn't go away. Robin was still being stabbed after all, but now he could focus. Shock had worn off. Robin glared at the face of Guy of Gisborne, and he rose. The assassin furrowed his brow and pulled the knife from Robin, moving in one fluid motion to cut his throat and be done with the contract. But Robin deftly stepped back and drew his sword. Seemingly unaware of the wound on his side, gushing blood out onto his Lincoln green cloak, Robin set his jaw and charged Guy. It was a long fight, and though it wasn't easy, Robin fought like a man who had accepted that he was going to die. It was only when he disarmed his opponent and pressed his sword to the assassin's chest that he thought he might live. Guy didn't plead. Instead, he stared coldly into Robin's eyes and nodded. In moments, he collapsed to the ground. Robin took off toward the camp, but stopped. The men, his family, 
were going to be captured or killed by the sheriff's men. Then, Robin forced himself to face a fact. His people had left hours ago. They had already made it back to Sherwood Forest, and, if Guy was telling the truth, they had already been captured. Robin looked back at the crumpled form of Guy, lying in the grass. Not so long ago, Little John and Much the Miller's son had braved Nottingham for him. Now, he could do the same for them. So that's how we get to what appeared to be Guy marching toward Nottingham, with Robin Hood's head on a pike. Robin, decked out in Guy of Gisborne's horsehide cloak, complete with the ears and all, looked up at the head, draped in his own Lincoln Green hood. He took no pleasure in mutilating Guy's face. Guy was the second most worthy opponent he had ever faced, behind that one potter who beat him up using only a stick. Guy deserved better, but Robin needed a way into Nottingham, and Guy's head, well, Guy's head was that ticket. The sheriff came rushing out, beaming. He was overjoyed, nearly giddy with satisfaction, Vigorously, he shook the rider's hand, bubbling about how nice it was to meet the guy of Gisborne himself and not just some disembodied voice in an alleyway. Robin exhaled. Good. Then the sheriff had never seen Guy of Gisborne's face. But then the sheriff looked up at the prized head. Huh. Robin shook his head. What? The sheriff waved a hand. Oh, it was nothing, but, well, was that him? Robin nodded. Of of course, he was a tough one too. Robin lifted up his cloak and showed the sheriff his own side, which had only recently stopped bleeding. He could see the sheriff wasn't sold. Robin smiled beneath the horsehide hood. He thought that the sheriff might be a little annoyed by that. And he had to say that, yeah, Robin Hood was a problem, but he was only one part of a larger thing. The outlaws in Sherwood Forest were like a hydra. If the sheriff cut off one head, Robin gestured up to the very literal head dripping on a stake above him, then two more would take its place. The sheriff pursed his lips and rolled his eyes. All right, so did Guy want to be paid to take down the rest of the outlaws or something? There came a rustling from the forest behind Guy. No, that he did for free. A hundred or so men came marching from the trees in unison, and the sheriff's right-hand man strode out like a conquering hero. It was done they had destroyed the outlaws of Sherwood Forest. Now, the sheriff's right-hand man was much, much more competent than the sheriff was. He'd found the camp at first light and explored it thoroughly, having his men keep track of what they touched and making sure they put everything back the way they found it. Robin's band of merry men didn't stand a chance. The first one who saw the glint of armor in the woods was the first one to get an arrow between his eyes. Shouts and fighting ensued as the arrows flew from all around as over 100 soldiers advanced on the camp, cutting down anyone who resisted. There was one, though, one who the sheriff would have wanted more than anyone. Unfortunately, he resisted more than anyone. But in time, after being swarmed and dogpiled by the sheriff's men, little John was battered into unconsciousness. The sheriff's man on the scene looped the chains around John's wrists and feet and loaded him aboard the wagon. The ones who didn't die ran, Friar Tuck, Much, Will Scarlet, and the others melted into the forest at the first opportunity, with Will Scarlet staying behind to fire on as many of the sheriff's men as possible, trying to draw them away from Little John. Unfortunately, he was effective 
and the brunt of the police force followed him off into the trees. He'd spent the rest of the day running. Robin was already in Nottingham, and he must be a faceless man or something, because I have no idea how he kept dining with the sheriff of Nottingham without the guy recognizing him as Robin Hood. Anyway, when the crowd heard the sound from the forest, Robin and the sheriff rose from the table and made their way to a window. Robin forced a smile as he saw the bound and thrashing form of little John pulling at his chains, shouting curses through his gag. The sheriff was speechless, and Robin hung back as he heard the news. The sheriff's men had found Robin's camp, thanks to a well-placed note that morning. If the stranger was to be believed, Robin Hood was already dead. With his camp burned, most of his men dead or running for their lives, and his most powerful friend in chains, it was over. The underling clasped the sheriff on the shoulder. Congratulations. The sheriff's man asked his boss what they wanted to do with little John, as he was called. The sheriff smiled and ordered that John be dragged to the tree that sat outside the wall and tied to it. He was to be executed, obviously. Little John glared and fought, but several strikes from a club helped to placate him on a short drag over to the tree outside of Nottingham, while more went into town to grab some rope. When John was safely tied to the tree, the sheriff strode over, patting him a few times on the face. That was a nice talk they had a few weeks back, when little John dangled words like Baron and Earl in front of him, knowing that he'd celebrate to the point of drunkenness. The funny thing? He might actually be given the title now, now that he had solved this problem that little John had dragged the king into as well. So maybe the sheriff should thank him. Yeah, don't actually thank him, though, the sheriff's right-hand man whispered. At least, not in front of the men. The outlaws have killed, like, so many of them. The sheriff smiled and now the outlaws were no more. All right, who wanted to swing the axe, so to speak? I will, a voice piped up from just outside the city, as the sheriff's right-hand man, the one who coordinated the attack and put his life on the line against the outlaws, unsheathed the sword. Who's the guy with the dorky-looking hood? The sheriff's man asked. The sheriff turned. That guy was, well, he was Guy. They weren't going to get into a who's-on-first situation, though. That was Guy of Gisborne, the man they had to thank for today's attack, the one who brought them the head of Robin Hood on a pike. With that sentence, Little John's eye shot to the mutilated head on a spike atop the wall, the one draped in a Lincoln green hood. He looked to the ground and sighed. The sheriff sneered as he looked at Little John. The guy who wasn't Guy walked closer. He said he knew any one of the sheriff's men would like the honor of killing Little John, but he would forego any extra payment to be able to do it. He wouldn't use an axe, though. He wanted to enjoy all the little details of the life leaving John's body. He would use a knife. The sheriff grinned uneasily, but then his smirk widened. This guy, this guy was messed up, and he liked it. Yeah. Also, bad call not wanting more money, but hey, you're an assassin, not a businessman. Can't be good at everything. The sheriff patted the faux assassin on the back, and Robin turned. He actually would need some payment, you know. Just not in money. Before he killed a man, he wanted to play something of a priest. He wanted to hear that man's confession. The sheriff laughed. Well, look at him. Little John wasn't going to tell him anything. Faux guy shrugged. Maybe. Maybe not. Knives always helped. Regardless, 
That was a little joy that was meant only for him. So the others needed to step back, out of earshot. Unless he started screaming, though. Then they could all enjoy that. It was then that little John looked up at this, frankly, pretty messed up guy, and a flash of a smile washed over his face, before it was replaced by a look of hate and fear. The sheriff grimaced. Yeesh. This was getting dark even for him, and he had just finished picking out the spear that went best with Robin Hood's gouged-out eye sockets. Yeah, Guy could have ten minutes. They wouldn't be here all afternoon. Robin nodded, and he waited. He waited until the others walked back to the outer wall before he cut little John's gag loose. Aye, Robin said. How is everyone? Little John shook his head, maintaining his glare. He didn't know. Robin unsheathed his dagger. Remember to scream, he said, as he jammed the dagger in between little John's arm and his side, severing the ropes around the tree. John screamed. Robin looked him in the eye. Good. Can you walk? This is going to be a lot more difficult if you can't walk. John nodded. He could walk. Time to go. Robin helped little John to his feet, and shouts went up from the wall, screams for the archers to scramble to their positions but everyone was so busy celebrating the complete annihilation of the outlaws that no one was ready. But the sheriff heard, and he and his men started off at a run after Robin and Little John. Try as they might, the pair of outlaws already had too much of a head start. That was when Robin felt a tug. When he looked back, he saw only John aiming an arrow from Guy of Gisborne's bow, both of which he had just plucked from Robin's back. And as soon as Robin saw who Little John was aiming at, he screamed. No! He dove for the bow. But the arrow left the moment before Robin swatted it from Little John's hand. They watched it in slow motion. They all did. Robin, John, the sheriff's men, the watchers from the wall. They all watched as the arrow found the sheriff's chest and pierced his heart. The Sheriff of Nottingham staggered one more step before he dropped to the ground. Dead. Little John smiled and threw down the bow. Robin shook his head in shock, but knew that when the Sheriff's men recovered from their own shock, they would be coming for him. Quickly, he sprinted after Little John. They ran for what felt like an hour until Robin was sure of two things. One, they weren't being followed, and two, they were deep enough in the Sherwood Forest for him to scream at Little John without attracting attention. What had John done? Little John could only shrug. He did what Robin should have done ages ago. He killed the sheriff. Robin shook his head, nearly sputtering. It wasn't just some random guard or priest or something. It was the sheriff. And he went up against us. And now he's dead. It'll send a message, Little John replied. Robin stepped in front of his friend. And even though he stood a foot and a half shorter, to John, it felt like they were looking eye to eye. John didn't get it. It was the sheriff. The sheriff was appointed by the king, and despite some good luck and great hiring decisions in the guy who raided their camp, the sheriff was a bumbling idiot. When provoked, he rushed headlong into action and made mistakes. And when he thought he had the upper hand, he got drunk and let them escape or went by himself to arrest a known outlaw and got beat up with a cane. They couldn't have been any luckier. They could have lived in the forest like kings. The king, too, didn't seem to care when little John lied to his face and helped Robin escape. But he would now. The murder of the sheriff would force the king into action. 
At dinner that night, Robin Hood talked of the sheriff's solution he sent to the king. It included hundreds of mounted knights and, if they couldn't find Robin and the band, burning down the entire forest. Obviously, that was idiotic, but the knights weren't. If the king came after them, they couldn't stand up to that type of force. That was it for them. John stood up. Robin wasn't there, he explained. Robin didn't watch their friends die by the hand of the sheriff's lackey. John said that he really was sending a message. They had tried to come after the band. They had left weaker than ever. After a moment, Robin sighed. Well, time would tell who was right. No replacement would be as blindingly incompetent as the previous sheriff, but they could dream, right? The Band of Outlaws had plans in place for such a time as this. Plans designed in the event that they ever had to leave their home. Robin went to the meeting place, and there he found the fires burning. Friar Tuck, Much the Miller's son, Will Scarlet, and others had all survived. After a count, in the hours that followed, Robin saw that he somehow only lost three men in the catastrophic day. In the end, they'd hit the sheriff and the crown harder than they'd been hit. The group asked for orders when it came to the sheriff's stragglers, those among the 140 that had ambushed the camp, but who had broken off and become lost. They were still tracking a few dozen. Robin said that this day had seen enough death. Each of the sheriff's men would be safely returned in Nottingham. Of course, they would return in their underwear. After all, Robin's band had to restock their weapons and armor for their new home. But return they did, and Robin hoped it would be seen as an olive branch in light of the hammer that was about to come down upon them from the crown. You can never be too careful, especially not after the incident with Guy of Gisborne. A new sheriff hadn't been named, or at least one hadn't shown up in Nottingham, but that didn't mean assassins couldn't range the forest. And this one if he was an assassin, wasn't trying to hide anything. They heard his sword clanging against his buckler, his shield, a mile off. As Robin tracked the young man, he could see his face was hidden. Robin studied the weapons that bounced along the man's side and hung over his back. These weren't the weapons the common rabble usually carried. These had been made in a castle forge by a professional. And Robin? Ugh, he would really like to have those. John and Much weren't far off, he knew. In the weeks since the incident at the old hideout, Robin had completely revamped the band of outlaws. No one went alone into the forest. They had scouts watching Nottingham for any movement, and there was a constant, rotating watch. They wouldn't be caught unaware again. Robin gave John and Much the hand signal to stay back at the ready. The man, maybe Robin's age, if a little younger, stopped for water from a stream, and Robin saw the perfect opening. As he crept down, he considered the idea that the stranger could have been making the noise to draw him out. As he pressed the tip of his arrow to the back of the stranger's head and saw the man tense and freeze, Robin knew that he was in no danger. Drop the sword and bow and any cash you have, then leave as fast as you can, Robin commanded. If you do anything else, it'll be the last thing you do. Immediately, the man complied. He unhooked his bow from his back and tossed it to the ground behind him, dropped his pack and undid his buckler. The sword, too, Robin reminded. The man hesitated. Look, 
it's not like it's some big loss. It was made in a castle forge, so you had to have stolen it off someone. I'm just stealing it off of you. There's a valuable lesson here about keeping your guard up. Don't worry, though. You'll steal another someday. Keeping your guard up, the man replied. Robin lowered his bow an inch. The man pulled the sword from his scabbard and held it out to drop it, but he turned. With one slap from the side of the sword, the bow swung wide, and the arrow fired into the trees ten yards away, and the bow clattered onto the rocks at the stream's edge. The mystery man looked to his left and right, where John and Much had been hiding in the trees, and shifted, so he was on the edge of Robin, denying his men a clear shot. Robin drew his own sword just in time to block the strangers. With the clash of swords, the battle began. Robin was surprised. He wasn't the absolute best swordsman, but he could hold his own against pretty much all of his men. That, and his education, was part of the way he'd earned the position as their leader. He had been trained by his father's own men in a time when he was set to be a knight, but that was before he had fled his home. Now, he recognized everything. Everything about the way this man fought was something that he had learned from a professional. This man had received the same training that Robin had, but while Robin made the man bruise, the stranger made Robin bleed. The stranger was careful not to move too far from Robin either, lest he open himself up to a shot from the men on either side. As Robin ducked, he took another stab wound to his side. It was then that he found his opening. He slashed at the man's face, and though he ducked backward to avoid most of the blow, he didn't avoid all of it. It cut loose the cloth hiding his face. And when Robin looked up from his bleeding side, he dropped his sword. Skillfully, his opponent also stopped, mid-stab, the moment Robin dropped his weapon. Robin Hood, the famous outlaw, stood there speechless as he looked upon the face that wasn't that of a man, but that of a woman, a face he had known for as long as he could remember. Marion? Marion, the stranger, dropped her weapon, and Robin flew to her with an embrace, which also served as a way to keep his men from peppering her with arrows the moment the weapon was down. He couldn't believe it. How? How was she out here? What was she doing here? Marion smiled, tears beginning to pool in her eyes. She had found him. Marion had been serving in the court of Queen Eleanor when she heard the news. It was treated as something of a joke, that some young man calling himself Robin Hood was humiliating some English sheriff, that he had been so brazen as to send two of his men in disguise to appear before the English king himself. They all thought it was hilarious, of course, and Marianne had laughed until she left. One night, she stole provisions and weapons and clothes of a page so she could travel as a man, and she made her way across the channel. It had been nearly a month, but she made it to Nottingham, just as Robin Hood escaped and killed the sheriff. Sherwood Forest was a big place, and weeks of searching had proven fruitless. So she decided to bring Robin to her, and it worked. Beaming, Robin slid his hand into Marion's as they walked. He hadn't seen her in years. She had changed so much. They both had. As kids, they had been constant companions, but now things, well, they felt different. He introduced her to John and Much as the men left their hiding places to join the pair by the stream, 
and together the four walked back to camp. Weeks passed, and then months. The men met Marion, and the men loved Marion as one of their own. Finally, Robin had someone, too. Someone who knew him. A person who sought him out. He had a family with his men, and in Marion, though he didn't dare admit it, even to himself lest he lose her like he had already lost so many, he was beginning to find love. Furthermore, Robin was changing. He had come into the forest trying to survive, and he had. He and his men lived like kings, free and happy. Still, something plagued him, and his oath that he had made the Virgin Mary hung on his lips. In stealing from whoever passed through the forest, Robin could see two things. The rich were rich, and the poor were poor. Very poor, actually. With the country stabilizing, too, the rich were getting richer, but the poor remained poor. In time, Robin had started to see himself as part of the problem. Sherwood Forest was increasingly dangerous, and so the town taxes were skyrocketing just to protect the people. And yet, Robin and his band had seen no extra efforts to protect travelers. The government had seemingly done nothing to improve safety, so where was all the money going? Well, to him for one. When the lords and nobles getting fat off the people made their way through the forest, and he robbed them, then, one day, he returned to camp and found his men fattening themselves the same way the nobles were, all off the same fund, the people. He knew there had to be more to existence than simply being as comfortable as possible before death arrived. Robin Hood was a forest-dwelling outlaw, something he never planned to be, but perhaps there was something good that could come out of it. That's when he had an idea. That evening, he gathered Marion and his men. There were going to be some changes in the works. First, they were going to be targeting only the rich, but not just the rich. The rich and cruel. Nobles who feasted off the wages of their starving people. Priests who gilded their carriages with the widow's last shilling. Merchants who controlled the market and knew it. Lords who worked generations of people to death for pennies. The men nodded. Yeah, okay. That was basically who they were stealing from anyway. Robin nodded back. He knew that. But now, they would be giving it away. This stopped the camp dead. Robin continued. They would give it to those generations that worked themselves to death. So maybe they could afford their own land. They would give to those widows and orphans. And people who had been trampled underfoot by this system. So they could not only survive, but have a future. They could be something more than just outlaws. They could stand for something. Robin truly thought it would be a much harder sell than it was. But everyone in the group had been on the edges of society at some point, too. And they all wanted to help. That night, they celebrated. And in the morning, their world changed again. At first light, a low whistle sounded from the edges of the camp. And Robin turned to see Will Scarlet running in. He was coming to Nottingham. They had to see. Robin and Marion told him to slow down. Who was coming to Nottingham? What was going on? Will caught his breath. The sheriff, well, the new sheriff was on his way. He would be making his way into the city. Robin nodded. All right, let's go take a look. The troop crouched at the tree line. There were archers in the trees, in case they needed to make an escape. But Robin, Marion, Little John, Much, and the others were right up toward the edges of the forest as the procession made its way slowly toward the opening gates of Nottingham. Then, they saw him. Marion narrowed her eyes and gasped. 
No. She turned to Robin, but the young man wasn't looking anymore. He was sitting with his back to a tree, face bleached white. Was that? Robin stopped staring off into space and looked into Marion's eyes. With a nod, his hand went to his bow, but she stopped him. She shook her head. She understood, but not here. Marion tried, but couldn't stop Robin as he wrenched his bow from the ground, his other hand darting to his quiver. Three group members joined the silent struggle, pinning down his arms. Friar Tuck covered his mouth, and ultimately, Little John picked him up bodily from the ground and carried him off before he could do anything stupid. Back at camp, they all demanded to know who that was. Who was the new sheriff of Nottingham? Robin refused to talk, but Marion stood. The men had a right to know if Robin's anger was going to endanger them all, she said. The new sheriff of Nottingham was the man who had destroyed Robin's family. He was the reason Robin had run off into the forest years ago. She didn't know the full story. She imagined that the only two who did were Robin's father and the new sheriff. And of course, Robin's father was dead. She had only heard it secondhand in the court of the French queen. It was simple. Robin's father had been a favorite of the king, and the new sheriff was jealous. Undeterred, Robin's father underestimated his rival. That is, until the knight stormed his home. Robin's father was away on one of the crusades but he never made it back. He was executed for treason. So was Robin's mother. They all thought Robin had been executed as well, until the news of some outlaw in Sherwood Forest started making the rounds. That was why Marion had come to the forest, to find him. Marion continued, turning to Robin, and she had found him, and so much more. She saw that he had found a family here. It could never replace what he had lost, but it was worth protecting, it was worth not rushing to a hasty death out of anger and getting them all killed for nothing. She pointed in the direction of Nottingham. His day would come, but he was smart and he was ruthless and they couldn't just kill him outright. Another dead sheriff would bring a response from the king. No, they had to be careful and they had to wait. Robin looked at Marion and his assembled outlaws and he exhaled deeply. Okay, okay. He wouldn't go after the new sheriff. Not yet, anyway. Whatever it was, whatever conflict was to come, Robin knew that they would face it together. Marion smiled and took his hand. Except that they wouldn't face it together. The next morning, Robin awoke early, but he wasn't the first one awake. Marion had risen even before him and pinned a note to Robin's tent. She said that Robin was right to calm himself and she hoped he could forgive her. But they couldn't be blind to what the sheriff was up to. Was he here for Robin? What did he know about the outlaws in the forest? Why had he come down so ruthlessly against Robin's father? And who else had been in on the conspiracy? These were questions without answers. But Marion was going to force them. Robin crumpled the note swore and threw it into the budding campfire. That afternoon, the new sheriff of Nottingham had just finished purging his staff of his predecessor's men. The previous one had been the poster child of incompetence, and so he had brought his own men with him, smart, professional men, who 
who would bring the rampant outlaws in the forest to heel. He turned to his new page and asked her to dictate a letter. The young woman had come in just that morning, but she was the perfect fit. Not only could she read and write, but she knew half a dozen languages and had trained in the court of the French queen. He turned to the smiling face of Marion, who gripped the quill, ready to take down a message for her new employer. going to leave our Robin Hood stories at this time. And yeah, I kind of got to have my cake and eat it too a bit with the sheriff. The sheriff of Nottingham is a title, not a name. And I desperately wanted to present the bumbling, incompetent sheriff of the original 16th century stories. And the extremely intelligent, dangerous sheriff linked to Robin's past in later stories. We found a perfect connection too. In the Ballad of Robin Hood and Guy of Gisborne, the sheriff was in fact killed by Little John. But our new sheriff the one we'll know from now on, is vastly different. A far more competent individual, more in line with the later versions of the tale. Next week, we're jumping back in time for the founding of one of the most important cities in history, Rome. And you'll learn why the name of one of the most powerful empires of all time might not mean what you think it means. I want to say thanks to Biggest Man, Jared Grab, Evil Monkey Dance, Ray Martinez, Angry in Philly, Simpson 7-Eleven, Clary Lou, Transcendent Bird, Canine the Tin Dog, Meat Squeeze, Murper, Handy Dad, Pulp 818404, and The Song Remains for the reviews in Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so much. And if you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place. And you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There is also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a pad that mimics human skin, fat, and muscle, on which you can practice suturing, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad free versions of the show won't help you at all with your sutures. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is Milcham from rabbinical folklore. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and alongside the serpent that tempted them, they were cast out of the garden and an angel with a flaming sword was left standing guard to keep them from coming back in. Except that it didn't at least according to folklore. Apparently, mortality loves company because Eve just couldn't stomach the thought of all those animals still living inside the garden, sinless and immortal, while she had to scrape out a living in the dirt and deal with the now super fun process of childbirth. Something had to be done. There was an angel guarding the doorway, but it kinda seems like they were only guarding that one doorway because, according to folklore, Eve made several entrances back into the garden. While she couldn't stay, she could doom entire species to death and sin forever with her. It's said that she tempted each and every animal to eat the fruit of the tree. So it wasn't like she was just sneaking deadly apple slices into their grain or whatever, but slowly, more and more animals found themselves unable to stay in the garden. And Adam and Eve's farm outside grew and grew. Maybe Adam wondered where all the new livestock was coming from, or maybe they had cheeseburgers now, so he really didn't worry about it. Regardless, one day, Eve came to the last animal, the Milchem. Relaxing on the grass, doing whatever it is an immortal, sentient bird does, the Milchem politely refused the apple. Yeah, no thanks. Hard pass. He gestured all around to the garden. He was in literal paradise, 
and yet somehow he watched all of his fellow animals get their walking papers after trying the one thing they weren't supposed to try. The Milchim said he had to hand it to Eve. Getting animals to leave paradise over a few slices of fruit? She was good. Ants will be easy. But he had no idea how she convinced a lion to eat an apple. Good stuff. Still no, though. Please leave. She did leave. But apparently God decided that Milchim didn't need the entire garden to himself and his family and instead made a walled city to reward the bird for resisting and to keep him and his babies away from the horrors of sin. They would never die, but they do need a refresh every now and then. Roughly every 1,000 years, the birds are consumed by fire, but within the ash, an egg will be found, from which the milchim will hatch and start its millennium-long life anew. And yeah, it's basically a phoenix. According to the folklore, the castle is still out there somewhere, but really, it hardly seems worth it you'll just find a bunch of birds on fire who really don't want to share your apple slices. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.